In 2007, the city of Karim in the Czech Republic was left shaken by a monstrous case of child abuse, one that involved cannibalism and cults. The authorities went on a widespread manhunt for members of a secret organization and a 13-year-old girl who had more surprises up her sleeve than Houdini. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Today we're headed to the Czech Republic, which is ranked as the seventh safest country in the world. And it has the most castles per square meter. There are over 2,000 castles and castle ruins in the small country. The Czechs are also famously known for their beer drinking habits, with the average Czech drinking 188 liters or 50 gallons of beer per year. That ranks them as the biggest beer consumers in the world. So let's sit back in our castles, pour ourselves a drink, and get started on today's episode. But before we do, I just want to give you a heads up that today's case involves severe child abuse. If that's not something you're comfortable hearing, please skip today's episode. In early May 2007, a newly expecting father unboxed his baby monitor. He'd had it for months, but as many busy parents do, he'd been putting it off setting it up for his newborn. The excitement and urgency he felt while unboxing was due to the fact that his wife had just had their first baby. He needed to get this monitor set up before they brought the newborn home in a couple days. As he switched on the screen, he was surprised by what he saw. It wasn't the interior of his house. Instead, he saw the image of a small, naked boy. The footage was grainy, monochrome, and very dark, but what he could make out was the image of a small boy who appeared to be six or seven years old, sitting on a cement floor in a dark room. The boy was quietly playing with the roll of scotch tape. It was weird, but it didn't alarm the expecting father. He thought there must be a technical glitch in his monitor, and it was picking up some other family's feed. He watched the boy for a few seconds while he played, seemingly contentedly, with the tape as an improvised toy. Then he put the monitor down, deciding he didn't have enough time at the moment to figure out what was wrong with it. He went on with his day. A few hours later, he turned the monitor on again. This time, when he switched on the video feed, the little boy was still in the same room, but he wasn't alone. There was a woman who was feeding him scraps of bread. The woman's face was off the screen, and he didn't recognize her voice. But the hair stood up on the back of his neck when he realized the little boy's hands were tied behind his back. He didn't know what to do, but he felt uneasy about what he had seen. He went to the hospital to visit his wife and told her about what he saw. She suggested that he let the police know, just in case something bad was happening. At 5 p.m., after the visit with his wife and new baby in the maternity ward, he returned home and turned the feed on once more. He felt sickened by what he saw, and he couldn't tear his eyes away. The boy now appeared to be hogtied his hands and feet bound together behind him. He lay on his stomach and appeared to be eating what looked like vomit from the floor. It was time to call the police. The man was worried he might lose the feed, so he started recording it just in case. It didn't take long for the police to arrive, and after looking at the footage themselves, they knew they had to investigate. The lead officer at the scene agreed with the new father that the baby monitor was designed to transmit to a receiver close to its location, so whoever owned that baby monitor would have to be close by. The police went to the neighboring homes, 
and when questioned, no one admitted to having a small boy in a dark room. One of the doors they knocked on was that of Clara Morova, a 29-year-old woman who moved in about six months earlier. According to neighbors, she was fairly reclusive and had hardly been seen by her neighbors since moving in. When they asked her if a little boy was anywhere in the house, she said no. The only child there was her 13-year-old daughter, Anishka, who they called Anna. She was a sickly 13-year-old with developmental delays, and she would be extremely upset by strangers coming into the house. Out of politeness, and the fact that they had no solid reason to believe that Clara was hiding anything, the officers excused themselves. Luckily, our new father was still in his house watching and recording what he saw and heard on the monitor. He had been able to hear the conversation between the police officers and Clara and was happy to replay the footage for them when they returned to his apartment. When the officers heard the words traded back and forth with Clara, there was enough evidence for them to press her for a search. This time, she couldn't object. Her house was now considered a crime scene. Three officers entered the apartment and began to investigate. She protested their intrusion into her apartment, and the little girl began screaming at the top of her lungs and getting in the way. The sweep revealed one possible hiding place, a small padlocked door under the staircase. It looked like a closet. When the officers asked Clara to open the door for them, she claimed she couldn't. It had been locked since she moved in, and besides, she didn't have the key. The officers were having none of her lies and began working towards breaking down the door. At this point, Anna crawled on her hands and knees over towards the door, babbling and crying. Meanwhile, Clara was blocking the door with her own body. The police couldn't deal with them and break the door down, so they called for reinforcement. At the same time, Clara called for her own reinforcement, which came in the form of her sister, Katerina. Just as the fire department arrived with their cutting tools, Katerina arrived, joining Anna and Clara in front of the door, obstructing the firefighters who had arrived to help. Anna appeared to be a preteen, but she behaved like a much younger child, rocking herself back and forth like a toddler. She was definitely developmentally disabled in some way. The firefighters and the police had to physically remove all three women from in front of the door. The two sisters made weak attempts to resist, but were quickly overpowered. But Anna put up one heck of a fight. As soon as the responders touched her, she began screaming, fighting, kicking, and hitting them. Still, she was young and sickly, so she wasn't much of a match for the attending officers. Once removed from blocking the door, she cried, Mama, Mama, and ran to her Aunt Katerina instead of her mother, Clara. The responders were able to make quick work of the locked door once the three women had been removed. When they cracked it open, the first thing to hit them was the smell. The air was old, stale, and smelled like human excrement. There was so much feces, urine, and vomit that the officers believed the child had been in the room for a month. It covered the bare concrete floor. The heat emanating from the small room was unbearable for most, it was early summer in the Czech Republic, and it felt like an oven in the tiny space. In the middle of the filth and heat sat a little boy, the one from the video monitor. Despite the unexpected illumination of the room, he sat appearing unfazed, 
he didn't cry. When the officers asked Clara who he was and why he was kept there, she admitted that he was her son, Andrej, but told officers there was no way that they would understand why she had kept him in that condition. She then became distraught and was unable to communicate any further. Her sister, Katerina, attempted to tell the officers that Andrej had loved the Harry Potter books. He liked to hide in the space under the stairs because it reminded him of the story. I solemnly swear she was up to no good. The excuse was ridiculous, and the police knew it. They needed to photograph Andrej while he was still tied up. When they pointed the camera at him, the sweet boy smiled, which broke the hearts of many onlookers. He was untied and taken by ambulance to a local hospital. Once there, his brave front shattered, and the trauma caught up with him. He became fearful and delirious. When he finally slept, his sleep was restless and filled with nightmares. When doctors attended him, he begged for death, trembling and pleading with them. They took note of the scars that covered his body, long scars on his arms and back that indicated slashing. Smaller, round scars covered his groin, and he had a large circular scar on his buttocks. While Andrej, who was seven years old, was being admitted to the hospital, the police found out that he had an older brother named Jacob. He was two years older and was in school. Jacob was picked up by police and taken to a health care facility where he would be joined by Anna. The caregivers tried to get information from him, but he was distressed at not being placed with his mother. He was reluctant to speak, especially in the company of strangers with whom he avoided eye contact. When they analyzed his body, it showed scars similar to the ones Andrej had, minus the scar on his buttocks. Jacob told investigators his long scars came from accidental scratches from a wire brush, and the welts on his groin were from insect stings he'd received when he was camping. This was unlikely, and when pushed for the truth, he finally broke down, telling the officers that his mother had hurt him. He said the long lines were from a fork she'd scraped along his skin, and the welts were from cigarette burns. His mom didn't even smoke. She'd bought the cigarettes specifically to use on her own sons. As the days passed, the two boys became more open about what had happened. Andrej's confinement had begun when they moved into the apartment about six months earlier. At first, he was kept in the bathroom, but after a while, he was moved to the space under the stairs. The only time he'd been allowed in the living room was on Christmas Day. Prior to that, he said he'd gone to a daycare where a woman he called Aunt Nancy worked. He said he was kept in a small room there, too. So the police questioned this so-called aunt, whose real name was Hannah Basova. She denied any wrongdoing and said Andrej must have been talking about a small room they used as a timeout room for the many children who used the daycare. He was never kept there for long periods of time. The police had no reason not to believe her, so no arrests were made. The boys spoke of their mistreatment, but 13-year-old special needs Anna did not. Everyone who met her was immediately aware of her developmental challenges. She was clearly upset about not being able to see her mother and would kick, scream, and fight with anyone who tried to touch her. The hospital staff wanted to check her body for scars, too, but she wouldn't let anyone near her. 
The nurses decided she needed time, and they'd give her a few days to calm down before examining her, or even giving her a bath. Unfortunately, they'd missed their opportunity to do so, because Anna disappeared. She completely vanished, and the staff panicked. Maybe she'd been kidnapped by the people who had hurt her brothers. Or maybe she'd run away. Either way, it wasn't a good look. A mentally disabled girl was either lost in the woods surrounding the facility, or she was in the hands of abusers. She needed to be found immediately. At first glance, it seemed that she'd figured out how to open the window in her room and climb out, but this wasn't something a child could do. Authorities brought in a search team who swept the woods. They used infrared technology and canine units, but they came out empty-handed. Then they went door-to-door, visiting all the homes in the vicinity, but once again, nothing came from the efforts, which made them believe that an adult must have aided her in her escape. It was time to take a closer look at her mother, Clara, and her aunt, Katerina. The sisters grew up in a close-knit family. Clara was the oldest of three girls. She was followed by Gabriella and then Katerina. Their family was a normal middle-class family, and the sisters were close growing up. Clara was active and sporty, while Katerina was bookish. At the age of 18, Clara got pregnant with her son Jacob, and soon after married his father. Two years later, they would have their second son, Andrej. Mom and Dad seemed to have a fairly stable relationship and had support from both sets of grandparents. With this support, Clara was able to go to college and complete a degree in economics. She secured a secretarial job. Clara and her sister Gabriella were close, and Gabriella thought Clara was an excellent mother. She had no tendencies toward violence, even when she was stressed. Her nerves were tested when she and her husband began to argue more and more frequently. This led to a fairly amicable divorce in 2003, after six years of marriage, with neither one placing blame on the other for the breakup. Clara's husband would remain a part of his boys' lives, requesting as much time as possible with them, including taking them to various sports, outings, and gatherings. He was agreeable to letting Clara have primary custody because she was a wonderfully caring mother. At some point, after the first year of their divorce, Clara decided she needed to change career paths. She wanted to join her youngest sister in studying social work, child care, and education at a local university. Clara would take the boys with her, where they would play quietly while she studied, and she was complimented often on their good behavior. Clara's sister, Katerina, worked at a daycare, one that sometimes dealt with troubled orphans. One day, she invited Clara to come. There was a young girl there that Katerina wanted Clara to meet. Her name was Anna. She was sickly and in need of specialized foster care. Katerina thought Clara was the perfect mother for Anna and suggested the two of them get to know each other. When Clara and Anna met for the first time, Anna was painting in the woods. Clara would say that she was a kind girl, but it was obvious that she had been hurt in the past. She was shy and skittish, but a kind, quiet child. Afterwards, Katerina would tell Clara that Anna must have felt a strong connection with Clara, because she normally was extremely fearful of people, and the fact that Anna allowed Clara to approach her 
and talked to her was amazing. She normally wouldn't speak to anyone new. Katerina suggested that maybe Clara was exactly who Anna needed in order to heal from an extremely abusive past, one that had scarred her mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually. Clara and Anna kept in touch. In time, with Katerina and Anna's doctor's support, Clara would eventually decide to adopt her. Anna's doctor was very involved in her care, but from afar. In fact, Clara only met him in person once or twice. He would occasionally speak to her on the phone, but most of their communication happened through texts. He explained that Clara was very sick. She had cancer and would be lucky to live to age 16. He would help manage her cancer, and he would also manage her mental health because that was his specialization. He would also do it for free because he cared so much for her. As long as Clara followed his directions, Anna would live comfortably until she died from leukemia. This doctor became a highly influential person in Clara and her children's lives, beginning with helping Clara through the adoption process. He sent her all the medical documentation that was needed. Anna was pretty much undocumented. She had no birth records, no parents or guardians, so the process would be a bit more difficult, but he'd do what he could to help. He explained to Clara that Anna needed specific care. She had a glandular disease that could be treated by massage. The massage would help in three ways. It would help with Anna's disease, it would bond Clara to Anna, and if Clara were to, eventually, gently massage Anna's genital area, in time, it would essentially reprogram her sexually. Um, does that advice sound nuts to anyone else, or is it just me? I'd like to throw an apple at that doctor just to keep him away. Moving on. The adoption agency required a meeting with Anna, a doctor's visit where DNA samples would be collected and a physical performed, which would help age her. This was done, and she was estimated to be 13 or 14 years old. By this time, nine months had passed, and Anna had moved in with Clara. The adoption process was nearing completion. Only then did Clara's extended family find out about what she was going to do. It was a shock to most of her friends and family, as she was a single mother and had never spoken of wanting to adopt a daughter in the past. If that wasn't enough, Anna was very high maintenance, so sick that she was often required to be carried up and down stairs because she couldn't manage to climb them herself. Anna's arrival in Clara's home was witnessed by few, but the changes in Clara herself were obvious to many. She became increasingly hard-pressed for time, and refused company coming over to her house because she was exhausted and sad. One of Clara's closest friends, who had boys the same age as Clara's sons, met Anna just once. The two women and their children all went to a movie together. Clara didn't say much about Anna at the movie, but her friend couldn't help notice Anna's odd behavior. She asked Clara about it, and Clara explained that Anna was autistic and hated meeting strangers. After that trip to the movies, Clara distanced herself from her friend until they stopped meeting altogether, and phone calls stopped soon after.
Even Clara's ex-husband rarely saw Anna. He caught sight of her when he was picking up or dropping off his boys, but he never asked Clara about it, as he respected the fact that they now led separate lives. After a year, Anna's adoption was approved and recognized by the state. It was official. Anna was now Clara's daughter, and Clara's family would start to hear pieces of Anna's life story. She was born the daughter of drug addicts. Between their addiction and Anna's developmental problems, her parents were overwhelmed with her care. They had occasional help in the form of Anna's grandmother, who they would leave her with. One day, after dropping her off, they never returned. Maybe something bad happened to them, or maybe they wanted a new life without her, but they never came back. The story goes that Anna's grandmother took care of her until she passed away. Then Anna was put into foster care, where she was horribly abused and molested and possibly even trafficked. Eventually, she was placed in the facility where Katerina worked and where she was introduced to Clara. Soon after the adoption became official, Clara would drop out of school, telling the college that she went to that she was having serious personal and family problems. That same month, she and Katerina moved in together. The new home separated Clara from her friends even more. She became reclusive, barely acknowledging her neighbors. She withdrew from family, too. The boys' grandparents were not allowed to see their grandchildren because Clara said she felt that the boys were acting up and placed the blame on her parents, who spoiled them. She said she needed to be recognized as more of an authority figure. Clara stopped speaking with her sister, Gabriel, and told her ex-husband that the boys wouldn't be able to see him for a while because they were going to be attending educational programs on the weekends. Before long, the boys saw no one except their new sister, their mother, and the one person Clara kept in her life, her youngest sister, Katerina. Care for Anna was time-consuming, and now the boys, who saw their mother's attention being lavished on Anna, were likely feeling jealous and began acting out for attention. Life with Anna was more than Clara bargained for. Anna demanded gifts and special treatment. She would throw tantrums for attention if she wasn't getting enough. She once tried to jump out of a window. Clara was exhausted, often living on as little as three hours of sleep a night. She would do whatever she could to placate Anna, who began complaining that the boys, especially seven-year-old Andrej, was threatening her and hurt her when Clara wasn't around. Clara turned to Katerina and her expertise in childcare to help her deal with the stresses in her life. Katerina suggested they work with Anna's doctor since his specialty was helping kids with behavioral issues. He told her that the boy's attitude toward Anna was unacceptable because of her delicate state. He recommended that the boys be put in timeout or closed in a room by themselves until they behaved. They needed stern parental action. He said if the timeouts didn't work, he had a plan that would. He was part of an organization called the Grail Movement, and they believed in harsh punishments to keep children in line. He would help her by having her and her children attend an attitude adjustment weekend in the country. Well, the timeouts didn't work, so a weekend retreat was scheduled. The entire family drove to a cottage, about an hour's drive from their home. 
the cottage was well hidden and far from neighbors. It was an idyllic location for a happy holiday, but the boys wouldn't experience a single moment of happiness while there. I'm going to go into a bit of detail about the abuse the boys suffered, so again, if you're sensitive to child abuse, I suggest you hit fast forward for about two minutes. First, let me start by saying that there were other adults at the cottage, other members of the Grail movement, and most of them worked at the same daycare that Katerina worked at. They said they would help turn the boys' attitudes around. Waiting at the cottage were two small dog crates. The seven- and nine-year-old were placed inside, and the doors were locked. The boys were unable to stand or stretch out. They were told not to speak to each other, and if they did, they were beaten. They were fed using dog bowls, and over a period of several days, they were only ever taken out of the cages to be subjected to various types of torture. Bags were placed over their heads, and they were beaten with belt buckles and bamboo poles. Under the doctor's direction, Clara scratched them with forks hard enough to draw blood and leave scars. Cigarettes were lit and put out on their groins. Water that was hot enough to be agonizing but not enough to cause permanent damage was slowly poured over their abdomens. The physical torture was brutal, but psychological torture followed. With the bags on their heads, they couldn't see who was harming them, but they could hear the jeers and taunts well enough. They heard the voices of several people, both men and women, including their own mother. The boys were forced to memorize vulgar words and phrases. If they weren't able to repeat back what they were forced to memorize, they were beaten. Loud music was blared at them for hours, even while they were forced to dig their own graves and lie in them while being told that they were dead. They were forced to beat each other. At one point, Andrej was given a cup of water, which he was then told to give to his brother. Jacob drank it and then was taken away. A few minutes later, Andrej was told that the water was poisoned and that his brother was dead. They took him to see his brother's body laying in his grave. Andrej was told that if he was good, they would bring Jacob back to life. Jacob had been forced to lay in the dirt and act like he was dead. Anna had come to the cottage as well. The boys could hear her screaming while she was being beaten. In the middle of the night, the boys were woken up and told that Anna was going to get whipped, but they could take her whippings for her if they wanted to be good boys. And they did. The reality was that Anna wasn't being beaten. Instead, she took part in the beatings and torture. She willingly held Andrej's head under water in a bucket. It seemed the worst of the abuse was dealt to the little boy. He was dragged out of the cage with a bag on his head and pinned down while his mother cut a piece of flesh from his buttocks. He screamed as his flesh was sliced away. The meat was then passed from adult to adult, and each one took a bite of it. After those first few days, the abuse was tame in comparison, but it was abuse nonetheless. The boys were forced to stay at the cottage while their mother and Anna went home. They were repeatedly warned that if they told anyone what happened to them, they would be brought back to the cottage. Eventually, Jacob was allowed to go home and was even allowed to go to school, 
but his demeanor was drastically different than it had been the year before. Once a happy, healthy, athletic, fun-loving child, he was now absent, often. He missed every swim practice and nature outing. Any activity where he might have to get undressed was not allowed by his mother. Andrej was allowed to go home, but he was pulled out of school. His mother told them that he had a hearing problem and that she would homeschool him. His hearing was fine, and instead of teaching him anything, she kept him locked in the bathroom and eventually under the stairs where he would be rescued. When news of his rescue reached the media, many believed that the fact he had a camera on him while locked in that room meant his mother may have been selling the videos to sick people who enjoyed seeing children tortured. Clara said no. She thought she was doing the right thing. She had felt overwhelmed and exhausted taking care of Anna. She sought the advice of her sister and the doctor who suggested the punishments. She said she was coerced into hurting the boys. It was overzealous discipline, and now she realized that she was wrong. But the public was outraged. The story went into all the newspapers, and when Anna disappeared from the children's home where she and Jacob had been placed, it grew even bigger. It reached epic proportions when a local police station received a letter that claimed to be from the missing girl. It was handwritten and ten pages long. It offered an explanation for why she ran away. She had seen the news of her mother's arrest on one of the TVs and had become so distraught that she felt she had to find a way to help her mom. The letter also attempted to explain why Andrej had been locked in the closet. It was a harsh punishment, but one the little boy deserved. He was wildly unruly and had threatened to kill both her and their mother. Keep in mind, he was seven. This letter was met with skepticism. First of all, it was supposedly written by a mentally challenged 13-year-old and was 10 pages long, with no mistakes or grammatical errors. Certainly, Anna had to have had some adult help with the writing. When they compared the letter to samples of handwriting that Anna had left in the children's home, they noticed something interesting. Many of the doodles she had made on scraps of paper were actually fairly advanced mathematical concepts. There were squares, cubes, and things that a 13-year-old typically wouldn't doodle. They chalked this up to her autism, thinking that perhaps she excelled at mathematical concepts. The handwriting did match, however. Meanwhile, the media had published pictures of Anna with hopes that someone might have seen her. These pictures led to a tip that would add one of the biggest twists to this case. Someone from the children's home, where Katerina worked, said that Anna looked a lot like a woman who used to work at the home. Her name was Barbora Skrilova, but she was 33 years old and was much heavier than Anna. However, this tipster believed that Barbora and Anna were the same person. Police followed this lead. They began by researching the adoption process. Everything they had on Anna showed she was 13. The doctors who had seen her said she was 13, and the papers with Anna's health information agreed. The police then turned to the DNA that the adoption agency collected. They had a secondary sample of DNA that had been collected when Anna had been brought to the children's home after Andrej was found in the closet. 
when these samples were compared, they were not a match. How could this possibly be? And whose DNA did they have? Well, now that the police had the name Barbora Skrlova, they decided to see what they could find out about her. It didn't take long for police to find a link between Katerina and Barbora. They both attended the same college, as well as having worked together at the daycare. And they were part of a religious sect that had been headed by Barbora's father, Joseph. It was called the Grail Movement. They'd heard that name before and thought that that was more than just a coincidental connection. Perhaps it had quite a bit to do with the case and the motivation behind the cruelty to the boys. The police began with a few inquiries into other members of the sect, and this is where they hit pay dirt. The DNA sample that was taken as part of Anna's adoption process was found to belong to the daughter of one of the sect members. She was the one who was presented to the doctors and to the court, saying that she was Anna during the adoption process. In other words, during the aging process of Anna, this girl stepped in, pretending to be Anna. Could Barbora be Anna? While none of the co-workers had seen Barbora in a long time, she'd stopped working at the daycare center due to illness in 2005. They remembered her as being rather plump then, but she'd lost an astonishing amount of weight just prior to quitting. Police asked Katerina about whether Anna was Barbora, but she said the idea was ludicrous. She had known both women, and they were definitely two distinct people. Both Clara and Katerina were keeping their lips tightly sealed while investigators were searching high and low for little orphan Anna, but she hadn't been seen or heard for months. She had to be found, and her version of events had to be heard and scrutinized in order to figure out what exactly happened to the boys. As a result, prosecutors held off on commencing the trial while investigators worked to locate Anna. Their persistence would pay off eight months after Anna's disappearance, but it would pay off in a completely unexpected way. It was January in Norway, on one of the longest nights of the year, when a man walked into a car rental station to drop off a vehicle he had rented weeks earlier in Oslo. As he was completing the paperwork to return the car, police burst in with guns drawn and ordered him to lie on the floor. The man's name was Michael Reha, and the reason for his arrest was his travel partner, a 13-year-old boy who had been abducted from an orphanage in Oslo several weeks prior. The boy's name was Adam, and he was said to be the son of a Czech playwright named Martin Farnier. Martin, his wife, and their other children had dropped Adam off in Oslo for school before they returned home. By all appearances, Adam seemed like a normal 13-year-old boy, one who enjoyed skateboarding, but his teachers noticed some strange things. The first was that sometimes he appeared older than 13. He was very thin, with a shaved head and dark circles around his eyes. Imagine Uncle Fester from the Adams family. Some of the teachers wondered if he was sick. While in school, he was placed into an intensive Norwegian language class because he spoke very little of the language. But as he interacted with teachers and classmates, it became obvious that his grasp of the language was actually quite good. He was very smart, 
maybe even a genius, but he was nervous and afraid of loud noises. Once, when a teacher slammed a door, Adam had suffered a hysterical breakdown. When questioned about his behavior, he told his teacher a story of being abused by his father. He said he'd been rented out to older men for sexual purposes. His stories were very specific, detailing the acts that were performed on him, and the teachers were obviously concerned. They had to determine whether the stories were true, so they brought in a psychologist to assess him. If his allegations were true, his father needed to be locked up. It took a while for this psychologist to coax enough information out of Adam to call the authorities, but the final straw had been a drawing that Adam had made of seven children. They had blood on their hands and feet, and there was a man standing over them threateningly. Adam said he was child number seven, and that he and the six other children had been tortured and abused together. It was early December when Adam's father was arrested for child abuse, and Adam was placed in an orphanage. A few days later, the orphanage organized an outing for the children. While on this outing, Adam suddenly dashed off and jumped into a car that was idling nearby. It appeared to be a voluntary escape, but it was assumed that Adam had been coerced or maybe abducted by child traffickers, probably accomplices of his father's. A nationwide manhunt commenced, and Adam's face was plastered all over the nation's TV stations and newspapers. Three days later, Adam was seen 300 miles further west of Oslo. He was accompanied by a man and was seen holding the man's hand. They walked into a hotel where a receptionist greeted them. They asked if she would direct them to the hotel's phone, but she had seen that they had a mobile phone and wondered why they needed to use the hotel's phone. She also thought that the relationship was odd. They seemed to be too physically friendly with each other. It wasn't common for a 13-year-old boy to hold hands and snuggle with his father. She thought maybe the man was a child trafficker, or maybe they were trying to pull some type of con. Either way, they set off alarm bells for the receptionist who called the police. The next day, the police followed up with her, asking her what the men looked like and whether the child looked like he was under duress. The Norwegian police had found out that Adam's father hadn't come into the country alone. His family had come in with a man named Michael Riha and his sister. Michael couldn't be found. He had left his job at a computer store in Oslo and had rented a car on the same day that Adam had disappeared but he hadn't returned the car yet, and he had to eventually. This was how the police were able to capture both Adam and Michael. When Adam was finally rescued, he had one hell of a surprise for the police. He was not a 13-year-old boy. He was actually 33-year-old Barbara Skrilova, and he admitted that he had also been 13-year-old Anna. Barbara had hidden in plain sight, once again acting like an orphan in order to evade police. She had ultimately pulled off not one, but two cons and fooled hundreds of people, but she didn't do it alone. She had plenty of help from her father, her brother, Katerina, and other members of the Grail movement who had participated in the abuse of the two boys. 
Barbora admitted that the con had begun years before. She had a glandular disease, an underactive thyroid. It caused her to be smaller in stature and appear younger than her peers. She said that she was often passed over for advancement opportunities because she looked so young. She wasn't taken seriously, but she adapted and decided she liked how people treated her when they thought she was a child, so she figured out a way to be one. After Andrej was rescued, she had lost her golden goose. She no longer would have Clara to take care of her. When Clara found out she'd been lied to, she told the police everything. She said Barbora, also known as Anna, had participated in the abuse and probably lied to her about her sons. When Barbora found out that Clara was talking, she tried to blame Katerina, saying that Katerina had forced her to lose weight and pretend to be a child. When Katerina heard these accusations, she began talking too and said that Barbora was the mastermind behind everything. Her story was that Clara was sad about her divorce and felt overwhelmed by her boys and school, and so she asked her sister Katerina to move in with her to help take care of the boys. Barbora saw this as an opportunity and suggested that she move in too. She could help take care of the boys as a peer. Together, they came up with the orphan scam. They had to tug at Clara's heartstrings, and they did so successfully. The doctor, who Clara had turned to for advice, was not real. All the phone calls and texts from the doctor were found to have come from a phone that was under Katerina's name. It's unclear whether Katerina or Barbora used the phone, pretending to be the doctor, but the male voice on the phone and the two in-person visits with Clara were done by Barbora's brother. How Barbora convinced him to help and what exactly he got out of it was likely linked to their involvement in the Grail movement. Most of the people who were part of both cons were members of the movement in some way or another. The medical records were forgeries, and the cancer diagnosis wasn't real either. Katerina, who had joined the Grail movement under Barbora's influence, would pick Barbora up, and they pretended to go to cancer treatments together. They would come back afterwards with blankets wrapped around Barbora and tubes taped to her arms. It was all fake, but it was very convincing to Clara. This information led police to perform a series of raids among the people who were part of the Grail movement, searching for anything that could shed light on the motives behind the abuse of Jacob and Andrej, as well as how Barbora's transformation into Anna and Adam was orchestrated. They turned something interesting up. There were dozens of medical documents, all of them for children, and containing diagnosis for several various serious illnesses, mostly leukemia and other various cancers. The names were all for real children from the daycare that Katerina worked at, but the illnesses were fake. When medical experts looked over the documents, they came away with the impression that the forgeries had been based on a source written with some professional medical knowledge. However, there were technical errors. In other words, they were written by a doctor, but not necessarily an oncologist. It was likely the documents had been used to make fake insurance claims for the treatments of the illnesses. 
According to my resources, police weren't able to uncover any evidence of insurance fraud. Barbora's father was the leader of the Grail movement, and it seemed that both of them loved to manipulate people. Barbora liked to see how far she could push people, and most perversely, she must have enjoyed watching the boys be punished. She wanted to control everything in Clara's home, and given time, she was pretty successful. It seemed that both sisters had grown to love Barbora as Anna. Katerina kept her secrets and conspired with her, and Clara fawned over her adopted sick daughter. Barbara Skrilova ultimately enjoyed living off of other people and getting them to do her bidding. Whether a sickly young girl or a very smart 13-year-old boy, she loved the freedom and care that came with being perceived as an abused child. Except, it seems, when that love and attention was given to children other than herself. She tried to weave a story about how she had been abused just like the boys had. She said she had scars to prove it, and claimed that men had paid to rape her. I used a book called The Karim Case, A Terrifying True Story of Child Abuse, Cults, and Cannibalism, by Ryan Green as part of my research. In it, the author says that when Barbora's scars were studied more closely, the marks she claimed were from cigarette burns were more like abrasions and that they changed locations when she was examined on different days. The scars she had were identified as breast removal scars and scars from liposuction. When punishment for the child abuse was finally doled out, Aunt Katerina was given the longest sentence, ten years. According to the court, she was the primary instigator and organizer of the abuse. Mother Clara apologized and admitted what she had done, but still claimed she was under the influence of people she thought she could trust. She received nine years. The other Grail Movement members who were present and took part in the abuse and cannibalism on the Attitude Adjustment Weekend, were given between five and seven years, depending on their acts on that weekend. Barbora was given five years. Although she had physically held Andrej's head in a bucket of water, under, supposedly, the directions of Katerina as the doctor, she preferred to watch others abuse the boys. In October of 2013, Clara was released after serving only five years. Her boys had come to visit her in jail on several occasions, and she was apologetic. She would remain on probation for four and a half years and was not allowed to live with the boys. Katerina was released after six years on good behavior and did not maintain a relationship with the rest of her family. All of the abusers are now free. As I mentioned in the last episode, this case inspired a movie called The Orphan, it was released in 2009. It definitely has enough twists and turns to make a great movie or documentary. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Twisted Travel and True Crime and take a moment to rate and review it. If you'd like to see the pictures to go with this episode, they can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. There are links to all of those in the episode description on your podcast app. I'd like to take a moment to thank a couple people who have written a review. I'd like to start with DegK905, who says, Five stars, great show. She is original in her true crime stories. 
The shows aren't too long and not too short. Love Her Voice, my new favorite podcast. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Five Feathers from Australia, who says, one of my go-to podcasts. I like that I haven't heard most of the stories before and that they are told with respect to the victims. Lovely voice and love the random witty comments. Thank you so much, Five Feathers. I'm grateful to have you listening. I'd like to wish you both and all of you twisted listeners fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.